Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Williams and you're listening to Know Your Own Psychology. After many years building a successful career as a psychologist, I finally realised that it didn't reflect the autonomy and freedom I wanted in both my life and work. As I made plans to begin working for myself, my husband died suddenly and my whole world fell apart. But with a young family to look after and big dreams I did not want to give up on, I took some time and in the middle of the global pandemic, I left my old life behind. Today, I'm a private psychologist, digital course creator, mum to five and best-selling author. My mission is to simplify psychological ideas so that you can know your own psychology, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose. Are you ready to be empowered? This is Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. It's World Mental Health Day, and today in the podcast, I'm delighted to be talking to Josh Connolly. Josh is a resilience coach and accredited breathwork facilitator. He has talked openly for years about his struggles with an alcoholic parent, the difficulties he faced himself with alcohol, and how at one stage his mental health was so poor that he made the decision to end his life. Josh is someone who I respect deeply because he's unafraid to say what he truly thinks while also being open to changing his mind in the face of new information. This episode contains references to suicide and if any of this content is difficult for you, I would encourage you to take ownership of your thoughts and feelings and seek the appropriate support. I will put a link to specific organisations in the show notes for this episode. Okay, now that's been said, let's dive into this conversation with Josh. It's a great one in which we talk about trauma, modelling and how funding children's mental health is crucial in bringing about social change. So welcome Josh to Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. Um, we first connected on Instagram when someone recommended, I think, my grief work and journal and you shared my profile to your story. And I wanted to tell you this story because it was quite funny. So an old colleague of mine started bombarding me with messages and saying, oh my God, Josh Connolly has just shared your profile on Instagram. You better go and like kind of check him out right now. And so that's how we kind of sort of came to each other. And it's, it's fascinating to me how um, even people who work in psychological fields are so inspired by you. Um, and yeah, so even though I do some sort of limited grief work now, I think what you and I have in common is a bit of a passion for working with people on trauma. So I think that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. And yeah, I can't wait to see where the conversation takes us. Um, okay, so I'll get, I'll get started. So Josh, firstly, could you just introduce yourself and your story and tell us about why you do what you do now? Okay. Uh, yeah, look, uh, that's, by the way, it's amazing uh, that we connected in that way. Yeah. And I, I, I think, uh, yeah, there's always a part of me that just thinks this uh, crazy, you know, when psychologists and stuff like that are talking in that way about me um um, yeah so no no it's good um I'm so look I I work primarily I say as a resilience coach the reason I'm passionate about uh kind of labeling myself in that way is because I do think that, that that it's important for people to understand what certainly a new idea of what I think resilience is which is you know breaking some of this the myths about it being that you have to push through and you know always be moving forward and all of that kind of stuff and 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 rather get people to understand about the importance of connection and community and understanding ourselves and and our needs and finding ways to get them met um so that's kind of the work that I do and I do that in a sort of so many different ways um and the reason that I do it is because of my own personal experience of um struggling you know for all of my life really and wow I was going to say until I started my healing journey but the struggling (laughs) didn't stop when I started my healing journey um um, but but I think what drives my passion most is when I started to be able to make sense of my pain when I started to be able to see that a lot of it actually made sense when I looked at it and understood it deeper uh, I became passionate about trying to help other people see that because for me, I did a lot of like um, running away. But then often when I sought help when I was a lot younger, um, 
nobody ever looked at my experience as a whole. They only looked at what was going on in the moment. And when I've been able to look at my experiences as, as a whole, as hard as it's been, um, it's been the thing that has brought power back into my life to be able to navigate my struggle in a way that that is less um, traumatic, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's where the passion comes from. Amazing. Amazing. And two things I love about that. One is the holistic nature of what you're talking about. You know, that healing doesn't come from just one aspect of something. You have to look at the whole broader picture to understand yourself and be self-aware enough to, to make those changes. And also the, the bit on resilience that, you know, this sort of changing or, you know, shifting idea about resilience is not about pushing forward and pushing through. It's, you know, sitting with yourself and just being in that present moment and really understanding what's going on for sure. Yeah. And I like, you know, I often people I, I see a lot of people saying we should try and, you know, we shouldn't be helping people to de develop resilience. We should be creating a world where you don't need to be resilient. And I actually think I understand why people say that. And I and I understand what they mean. And I do think that there's and I do a lot of it myself, kind of a need for social change. However, the belief that we can live in a world where we're not going to struggle, I think, is part of the problem itself. Right. Because struggle is coming um and struggle exists and it's actually dysfunctional to to think that we'll ever create a world um where, where we don't struggle so i think making sense and understanding who and what we are in those struggles is is, is important yeah no i totally agree with you and i think that resonates with me on a level with my own experience of having lost my husband very suddenly and unexpectedly and my and watching my children. And I remember people saying to me a lot after his death, you know, oh, kids are resilient, I'll just go on with it. And really sort of that being quite difficult for me to hear because in a way I didn't want my children to be resilient I wanted them to have their dad but actually you know as you say it's it's unrealistic to expect that hard things you know aren't coming down the line for you at some point and you know developing those skills can can happen ahead of time I like to talk to people about you don't have to have had something traumatic happen to build your resilience skills right yeah no exactly and and you know, I hear that all the time. The children are children are naturally resilient. And I think children are sort of natural born survivors, like with huge capacity to be resilient. But yeah. actually what they'll do is is harden themselves in ways that are potentially unhealthy unless we are doing what you said, finding and helping them comprehend their experience and find the skills that they need to be able to deal with whatever they're facing. Right. And that's different to I think sometimes the children are naturally resilient is almost becomes a little bit of a cop-out for people right or, or or a way of softening uh, uh what we feel when we see children have difficult times when actually what they need is is for, for people to go in there with them and, and give them the skills and support that they need and deserve yeah absolutely absolutely i love that so this is a bit of a preamble but in my work on trauma I have previously been told online, of course, that I was pathologizing like normal family relationships. And it was really interesting to me that someone had that reaction because I feel it's kind of the opposite of my intention, which is to kind of normalize relational trauma and make it more acceptable to say that perhaps your relationships in childhood weren't actually ideal, even in the families where there was also, you know, protective factors of love and support and, and whatever also present. And I just wondered what your experience was of people disagreeing with what you say and what you think it means when someone has such a strong reaction to those of us doing this kind of work. I think that whenever, if I reflect on, on myself, most of the time that I've had a strong opposing reaction to somebody where it, where it compels me to, uh, you know, really argue with them online, inadvertently in the end, I need to trace it back to what, what part of me is worried and what part of me is scared of them holding that opinion. And the biggest learnings I've ever had is when I trace those things back, right? So when I reflect on it myself, I think um, that's probably true in a lot of cases. Um, and whenever I'm delivering anything, you know, be it online or in person, when some people get nasty's probably no nasty happens online but in person sometimes people can strongly oppose that's being kind what yeah. i say <laughs> yeah. uh i tend to believe that it's because 
they're, they're not, you know, they're not ready to hear what I'm saying because they're not ready to look into what it means for their experience. Sure. Um, and and so they so they have to make me wrong. And in some ways, I I you know I try and allow them that grace. Um, however, there's you know you don't get to be horrible to me or anybody. I don't think just because yeah. of your own experience and not face consequences. So yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's that sense, I think, of people being a bit triggered. I don't really like that word triggered, but you know what I mean when I say it, you know, that people get quite triggered by you talking about normal familial relationships being problematic or tra traumatic in some way. Um, and I, I've had a, one or two people sort of call me out in that. And I think that's also helpful to sort of, you know, stop for a minute and think about what you're saying and how you're saying it and how that's landing with people for sure. But that, you know, that makes sense. Um. Okay, now you have spoken before about alcohol having saved you. And it's a really interesting perspective on it. And I think, it, you know, listeners will be interested to hear your take. And you, what you said is that when you stopped drinking, that was when you actually struggled to cope with the emotions that the alcohol had previously suppressed and pushed down. Could you just talk a little bit into that and talk about perhaps maybe how bad things got before the turning point for you? Yeah, look, with my relationship with alcohol, I think where I get the, the concept of what you just talked about, I remember reading uh, Russell Brand's book, his mm. first ever book, I think, called My My Bookie Work. I think it might have been that one. Uh, and he talked about how he, he taught just when he first had a first session with the therapist, he told her everything about his drug use. Uh, and the therapist's first response was, well done for finding a way to keep yourself alive. Yeah. And I remember reading that and thinking... Wow, you know, because what I'd been taught in my own recovery at that point, I don't remember how far I was into my own sobriety when I read that. But what I'd been taught up until that point is that I have to take responsibility for all of it. And that, you know, what, you know, I was bad and it was all my fault and I should stop it. And I need to learn, you know, all, all the difference. And when I read that, I was like, wow, that makes a lot more sense to me. Um, and then when I started to, when I start to look back at my own journey, you know, people ask, I, I often talk about being an active healing journey for the last 10 years, because that's when I stopped drinking and very consciously looked for the answer, right? Or looked to make sense of what was going on or to find a way to be able to navigate life in a way that didn't feel so horrible. And the reason I say actively seeking healing journey is because when I was 12 years old and I found cannabis, I was, uh, which was what I found before alcohol, I was doing exactly the same thing as I started doing 10 years ago, which was trying to find a way to navigate the world in a way that seemed less painful. And yeah. it worked. Yeah. Right? The problem is, is that it worked very well um, when I was a child, um, in the moment at least. And then for me, you know, what happened with my drink and drug use, it got to the point where I was like completely controlled by the way, by, by, by alcohol, right? Or, or by the ways in which I used alcohol, by, by my relationship with alcohol. Um, and I, I, I used to stop every now and then. I'd stop for a day or two or a week to prove that I didn't have a problem. Um, but they were only ever driven by knowing that I would end that week off of it by having a big old drink. And so it was always controlled by alcohol and you know, in the pits of it, I had a few pitiful sort of suicide attempts when I was drunk. Uh, they weren't really cries for help. I don't think that's what people often say they were. They were more just sort of pitiful attempts at trying to do something because I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I, like the problem with it in the end is that alcohol stopped working. And my obsession was the belief that I could make it work again. Um and so I finally stopped when I was 24, when it, when it stopped working and I realized it doesn't work anymore. So maybe I need to stop it. Um, but as you mentioned, when I stopped drinking and all those emotions came back for me, my life got worse internally. When I stopped drinking, my life got worse, despite saying on the outside that I loved it and I was so happy to be sober and all of those things internally it got worse and that became even harder because externally it started to look a bit better, right? I was looking yeah. in better health and all of that stuff, but internally when you're still thinking, feeling and even behaving in similar ways to you did when you were drinking, but now you can't blame it on drink. That, yeah. That's when I reached a place where I felt like I had nowhere to go. 
Yeah, and it's so interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, that talks to mental health in general, doesn't it? It's an internal experience. And if you don't talk about it and you're looking okay, like people can't see it. And I think today's actually World Mental Health Day, you know, and I think that's such an important message is, you know, just talking about it, reaching out to someone. And actually, I mean, you mentioned suicidality, which brings me on to like the next part of what I was going to ask you. So there's a bit of a preamble, so bear with me. Um, but many years ago, when I was in my 20s, a family member of mine took their own life. And I was at the beginning of like my first psychology degree when it happened. And I later ended up like writing a dissertation on the thinking styles that underline suicidality. And I don't think that was a coincidence, right? I found my way to that place. And the man who supervised that dissertation is a really well-respected like suicide expert. He recently published a book like distilling down like 20 years worth of research. Um, if anyone's interested to read it, he's an absolute force. His um, name is Professor Rory O'Connor and the book is called When It Is Darkest. But like one of the key messages of the book is that when people feel suicidal, they lose that flexibility of thought and they can't see that they won't always feel that way. It's like a sense of like, I just, you know, I'm never going to feel any different from how I feel in this present moment. And so often when people, you know, attempt suicide, it, it, what he says is it reflects a need to escape the intolerable emotion as opposed to a wish to die. And I guess that talks a little bit about what you were saying. It wasn't until I got to that point that I realised, like, you know, yeah. Like, what, what would you say about that? Yeah, I think, look, that would definitely align with the experience that I was having in, in terms of it just, you know, I'd lost any hope, right? Because, because as well as drink working in the beginning and doing everything that I needed it to do, yeah. when it stopped working, the one thing that it did do is leave me with the hope that maybe if one day I quit drinking alcohol and everything will be all right. Yeah. So yeah. I've always had that. I, there was always one trick left up my sleeve, right? Which was if this all get, I'll have to quit alcohol. And I think when I quit and it didn't get better and, and in fact it got worse, then all hope was gone, right? All belief that, that I had nothing left. I had nowhere else to turn. So that, that lack of hope felt right. And I think, the distorted thinking that I had at the time as well. One of the strong feelings that I had is that it was the best thing for everybody around yeah. me, my children, my family. And I remember clearly thinking, um, you know, I won't tell anybody because I don't want to burden them with having to pretend that they want me to stop doing it. Because I thought, you know, if anybody tries to stop me, they'll only be doing that because they know it's the right thing to do when deep down they'll be thinking it's the, that I should do it, you know? So, so that's where I was at with my, you know, my thinking at that time, which is, you know, obviously and clearly um, very, very distorted. Yeah. And like you say, because I was dealing with it internally on my own completely and portraying somebody who was happily eight and nine months sober. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So that there's that sort of I mean you know people talk about masking masking what's going on that within that internal experience I mean two, two things strike me about what you said one is hopelessness and that was one of the factors that I was investigating in my dissertation actually so it's interesting that you bring that up but you know that predicts like you know who sort of um, goes down that line and the second was what you said there about like I had that one thing and if I gave up alcohol what would that mean if things didn't get better and so often I see people holding on to the psychological presenting what I would talk about is like a presenting problem so an eating disorder or the OCD or things like they hold on to it like a part of themselves because if they let it go who am I and there's all those sort of identity struggles and things at the back end of it um it's fascinating to kind of hear you talk about it in that way. Um, okay, so kind of moving on from there, Josh, what could you just maybe say, when you reflect on your early like familial relationships, are you sort of now aware of particular features or themes running through them that impacted you as an adult? You know, the what the, the, I say the one thing, there's loads of things, there's lots of different things that we could explore. Yeah. Um, but I think the the one that really, really sticks out to me is the lack of truth that I experienced when I was a child. Oh, um, yeah. And not just not just the lack of truth. Um, but everyone trying to soften my experience. Right. Yeah. Um, 
and I think adults do this a lot this is something that I do you know when I work in schools and stuff like that and I you know talk to people that are interacting with young people that might be struggling and 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 everyone's beating around the bush yeah yeah no one's saying no one's talking about my reality clearly and and I think you know, people often comment on on my frankness and, you know, honesty and all that kind of stuff, right? And I do think a lot of that comes from the lack of it that I had in my life. You know, if you look at the extreme version at home, everybody was sweeping everything under the carpet, yeah? Nobody's talking about it. You come down in the morning, the house is, you know, it's been smashed up. You know what you heard last night. Yeah. And yet my mum is making breakfast and rushing about getting ready for school like nothing's happened yeah and so so like as a child without a developed rational brain i'm not thinking oh i know what's going on here they've had a fight last night dad's got an addiction problem which isn't his fault because it's from generational trauma and you know mum's dealing with that and she's wrapped up oh that's nothing to do with me that's fine i'm gonna go to school i'm thinking what like what's wrong with me why do i feel this way like i could have sworn like there's tension and i feel scared and worried and nobody's Nobody's telling me that. Nobody's nobody's talking about that remotely. Um, and so when I went to school, because of the stigma around addiction, nobody's talking about it, right? Uh, and in fact, I'm already lying when it's just as easy to tell the truth because I'm so fearful of my own reality that, yeah. that, that, that I can't talk about it. And I, look, the reason I think that's really important is because um, I lived an extreme version of that, particularly in my like informative years. But I think a lot of children live it because of us as adults and our, um, I don't want to be too controversial, but our obsession with emotional avoidance and, and, and not talking about the messiness and complexities that come with our own emotions, particularly in front of children. I think children are always confused, right? Or, or, or making sense of what they're experiencing with themselves at the heart of it. So if you, if you take that I had my dad and his drinking, if you've got two parents that are staying together for the kids, right, for example, which happens yeah. regularly, or even a marriage, right, that should last the test of time, but is going through a period of difficulty, yeah. right, but, no, but nobody's talking about it, then children, particularly of a certain age, young age, are going to be sensing this. Yes. And, 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 and if they have the whereabouts to even ask their mum, like, is dad okay? Mm-hmm. They they might be probably be met with, he's fine, don't worry about it. Yeah. Don't be silly, being silly, right? And so a child who's egocentric, what 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 um what story do they start to get about themselves, right? When nobody's talking about it. You learn at school only really predominantly about happy families, right? Yeah. So 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 when when actually dysfunction is probably more of the norm than than I don't even know if a functional family environment exists, right? And so I think there's so much uh, softening of language that we use when actually what children I think really need is somebody to give them the truth so that they can comprehend their experience properly, right? My God, like you're just totally speaking my language on so many levels, not least talking to children about grief. Um, And I have spoken at length about, you know, my children experiencing the loss of their dad and how important it was for them to be told the truth about that, you know, a developmentally appropriate truth, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's tempered by the age of them, my boys were just two, but also, you know, as you're saying, like when trauma, you know, the stuff that's going on is not being spoken about, what stories are they telling themselves about it? and definitely, you know, I love what you just said there about, like, does a functional family, like, even exist? Because I guess that's part of what I'm saying on trauma is that, I, so this is my own view. I think that trauma, like many things, exists on a bit of a spectrum. And at one end, we have this societal view that, like, trauma is extreme stuff alone, you know, childhood sexual abuse, neglect, all of those kind of things, domestic violence. But there's a whole load of other people who exist and families on the face of it look like they're functioning but when Mm -hmm. the door gets closed at night there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes on um that maybe is not you know as as ideal as you know people would like Um, Mm. and and it and what will and and in some ways 
and look, we shouldn't compare, but the complexities that come with the the, the latter people that you've just talked about, where yeah. it becomes even harder for them to, yes. you know, look, I can look and go, look, I can tell you some stories about my dad and, and, and everyone will go, yeah, yeah, it's clear that you'd be affected by that. Yeah. But if you're on that opposite end of the spectrum, where yeah. the water's just a little bit more muddy, right, and it's really hard for you to pick up on, I actually think, you know, I, I don't joke when I say that I think... Um, dysfunction is the norm right I say it like and it normally makes people sort of laugh a little bit but but actually I think it is the norm in families right what I think is not normal anymore is the lack of community that we now live in right so 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 I think if you go right back right to when we used to live in like tribes and my mum and dad would go out hunting and I would stay at home with the wise old elders right so if mum and dad did have any friction between them there's loads of other emotionally available adults right we actually exist in a society now where um where if your mum and dad can't be available for you which is gonna happen right there's times when I'm not emotionally available for my kids right there's yep. times when me and my wife at the same time are not emotionally available. There's times when me and my wife inevitably are going to have friction between us, right? And my kids need other adults to be able to uh, help them feel safe in those moments. But we exist today in a world where there might not be any other adults because it won't be teachers because, you know, they're so stretched now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've taken away youth workers and we've, 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 we've been so busy for the last 20 or 30 years convincing anybody that if you experience abuse it'll be by a stranger on the street right when actually the the, the extreme likelihood of you experiencing abuse is going to be from somebody that you love and, and 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 supposed to make you feel safe right so so um that lack of community i actually think um is traumatizing for our children right mm-hmm. um because they because they're they're lacking those um nurturing loving adults Uh, having regular uh, appearances in their life yeah absolutely and I mean obviously the pandemic like exacerbated a lot of that and has pushed that on even further but I mean the other thing you've said there which really speaks to my work is the bit about you know it's actually harder for those people at the less extreme end you know you're sitting in the middle of that spectrum and your family's you know on the face of it looks okay so it's even harder for people to step up and say actually I've got a problem and I don't know how to fix it I don't or I you know I don't know how to look into that and and do the things I need to do to make myself feel better Um, and so many of my clients fit that mold and come in saying oh but I don't really want to talk ill of my parents I don't want because they also love me and they also you know and they find it really hard to access the heart the difficult stuff and to talk to that with truth the other part Mm. of what you were saying you know um, yeah, and I think also as well, sorry, just to add to that, it's like, I like to think of myself as being quite like, a, a, on you know, emotionally aware, I'm doing this this kind of work, right? But I recognise the, the negative impact that I will have on my children, because my trauma, like my wounding will play out within my family home, right? I have to be honest and clear about that, right? Um, but if I was doing no work on myself whatsoever, right? Um, and that stuff was still playing out within the household, there would be a part of me that would subconsciously at least know that it was playing out. And so I would subconsciously, and I'm going to use the word manipulate, but I don't necessarily mean it in a a negative context, manipulate my kids into making sure that they didn't look too deeply at me because I'd be so scared and not wanting to see them to see what I was doing and to see my own wounds because I work hard to hide myself from them. Right. So it's like, you see, when you get into the complexities of what we're talking about, Yeah. How can kids get conditioned to not talk about it, right? We condition them to not talk about it through fear of what they might think of us. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, you know, as a parent, and, you know, I often have clients who talk about this stuff as well. It's really hard <laughs> when you have that level of self-awareness. It is hard to see what you're doing and, and find it difficult to change it. You know, I recognize that in myself for absolute certainty. Um. Okay, now I'm going to geek out a little bit into therapy speak for a while. I hope that's okay, because I know that you yeah, can't do kind of stuff, right? So in my work, I utilize CAT, which is cognitive analytical therapy as a model. And I love it because it offers a really accessible way to understand relationships and how we can be, you know, modeled a behavior as a child and then behave that way as an adult. 
So I'll just give a very brief example. So, you know, if you, for example, are a very critical parent, you not only learn what it feels like to be criticised as that child within that home, but you're also modelled to by them what it is to be critical. And so, you know, you take that as an adult and you either externalise that and the social learning of that and become critical of others, or you internalise that and become critical of self. Most people do about both. And yeah, like, so there's some similarities there with internal family systems therapy, which I know you um, quite like, where we might talk about the parts of ourselves. And I, you know, I guess I just wondered, like, do you have a particular sort of therapy to go to model to understand yourself or others like that you love? And could you talk to that a little bit? Look, IFS is the IFS is when I'm internally reflecting. Um, I say IFS. I, I'd imagine it's like everything, right? My own adaptation of it in the end. Yeah. Um, but understanding myself in parts and recognizing when certain parts take over and want to become polarized and uh, learning ways to soften them right and come back into myself um and i guess in you know if you bring the example that we talked right uh, about right at the beginning when you get triggered online or when somebody's triggered by what you've said it's a part of them right that's taken over and is becoming polarized and, and that's having the argument so i have to be aware of that in myself and i think uh the work for me has been around not believing that all my difficult parts need a polishing right but actually learning to love them understanding why they exist and being and allowing myself to be in them so for yeah. example when i'm around a lot of men at football yeah yeah when i go and watch football i still can't be there and be safe or feel safe in my body unless i'm doing a bit of pumping my chest out maybe being a little bit more sweary than I like and fitting in with what I do when I feel scared when I'm around a lot of men. Now, I even shame myself and say I'm not being authentic and I should be able to be the person that I am showing up to this interview, for example, when I'm at football, or I go, life's hard, life's tricky. If I need to do that to feel safe when I want to go and watch my football team, then let me do that to feel safe. As long as it doesn't become polarised, which it used to be when I used to go football when I was younger, then actually I feel like I'm winning so to speak so that's that's the model that I use um mostly on my own reflection yeah yeah yeah. I mean I guess all of these things you know cat IFS schema you know whatever it is that you're looking at they're you know tend to be psychodynamic and they take it that one step further and I, I do a lot of talking about like how CBT is the cornerstone of all talking therapies but it just doesn't cut the mustard for me like unless you are properly having a really good psychological formulation and understanding the backstory to that it just you know and, and I think that's what we often see these cyclical patterns of mental health where people get some therapy and then they're back and this kind of revolving door that happened. And so it's part of the work that I'm keen to be doing is helping people to understand it fully so that there's not that revolving door and they're not coming back all the time and, and experiencing life in that way. And I, I also think when you talk about CBT and, and uh, you know, and I, under, I understand the use of it as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm careful not to sound like I'm being critical of, yeah. of anything because I'm not. Um, but I recognized that throughout my whole life, what I did was take my really difficult experience, try yeah. and make it seem like it was a little bit better in my head, yeah. push the truth and the pain of it down into my body. Yeah. And, and, and then do all the good things. What I lacked in my life was somebody to sit with me with that stuff that I kept pushing down into my body that yeah. was coming out of me as addiction or uh, overeating or rage or, 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 or sleeping or whatever, you know, whatever, it, however it comes out of different people. And there's a, million and one different ways so I have to be careful that I'm not trying to rationalize my way out of trauma yeah because because I did that all my life and it was part of the problem right so I think that's that's like important to me to be, to always go deeper and to add in the the somatic kind of body work has been really really important for me in terms of yeah you know, the physical side of it yeah yeah I'm going to come on and talk to you a bit about that but I mean that makes so much sense doesn't it that you know, cognitively, cognitively reframing stuff is important, but it needs to be backed up by the understanding and not, you know, again, it's truth. Is there a truth to what you're doing? And if there's not, and we're suppressing the, the bodily sensations of things and how it feels, you know, it's, it's not going to do what you need it to do. Um, what So, Josh, one of the things that 
I'm really aware of with my clients, and you've talked a little bit to it already, is that those who have experienced any form of trauma are usually highly attuned emotionally to everyone around them. And I talk with my clients about being like a bit like a human litmus test or like having this sort of intuitive ability to like take the temperature of a room within seconds of like walking into it. And I know you've talked about being highly sensitive like that. And I just wondered if you could see like, what, it, what does it feel like to live with that? Yeah, look, one of the things I would say, right, is um, people that have experienced, so when I look at my own, my, my own high sensitivity, mm-hmm. I believe that I was born with a level of that high, heightened sensitivity. And that's one of the reasons I experienced the traumatic events that I did in the way that I did. Okay. Right. Um, and that's perhaps why, you know, as well as other complex reasons, like the roles that we take on within families and stuff like that. But if I take my older brother, for example, he doesn't have that level of sensitivity that I have. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so I believe there's a level of it being innate in me. Now, the problem with that level of sensitivity uh, is when it turns into the hypervigilance that it turned into when I was a kid, because it didn't have that nurturing experience. It had the opposite Um it becomes a the biggest burden of your life, right? Which is what it was for such a long period of time um, throughout my life that 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 um, knowing somebody struggling with something before they even know, yeah. Um, the seeing, the subtle changes, the sounds, the feelings, all of that stuff. Um, now I get to live with the benefits of it all today in my life because of being able to understand it and nurturing it and trying to develop it, but it can still feel like a heavy burden as well. Yeah. Um, um, but that, that, that level of sensitivity, I, you know, is what caused me so many of my struggles throughout my whole, yeah. my whole life, yeah. my whole life. And it's the most under talked about thing, I think um, in the whole conversation. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you're talking in psychology about this sort of nature nurture debate, right? You know, the, the stuff that is innate within you when you're born and, um I do recognize that with myself and clients this idea that when you are highly attuned you know I don't think it's any coincidence that people end up as psychologists and in healing professions of those types of things because you are highly attuned to emotional states but people take that one step further and then take on responsibility to solve that for someone and I see that so often as a parent right so I know when my kids like when there's something going on Um, almost before they do and then you take that you have this idea that as a parent you need to solve it or fix it and clients talk to me about this all the time and I'm like well actually we're not responsible for their emotional state we're responsible for sitting in it with them and I think it's Mm. a distinction isn't it like that gives you freedom to to not to not be responsible for all of it all of the time um, and it, you know you, you're talking about it as a burden like of course it would be if you're responsible for it, everyone's emotional state around about you yeah and that's you know that's what I say to people I say your problem is not that you're you, you know you feel things as deeply as you do your problem is is that the moment that you feel them you take responsibility for them right yeah, yeah. and so le- learning and, and by the way some of the biggest learnings for me to do for that has been to come back into my body and be able to just dis- firstly distinguish which feelings are mine and when I'm picking up on my children's or the people around me's feelings, right? Um, and, and and having spent years of my life as somebody completely disconnected and disassociated from my own body, actually doing the bit where I'm, you know, am I feeling this or is my wife feeling this, right? That There was a lot of work in that um, originally. And I think as well, on a more broad scale, we see it all the time with like what people might term as toxic positivity, right? Which is jumping straight to the fix and trying to make everybody be all right all of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Because we don't, we don't like what we feel like when we sense other people's uh, sensitivity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And actually you, you've talked about, you know, getting back into your body and connecting back in myself. And one of the things I just wanted to ask you about was just to talk a little bit about your breath work what it is what you believe it does for people because I know so many people are finding it to be incredibly powerful in their healing journey yeah look for me the one thing about um talking therapies of any kind right um is that I have become an expert at talking about my experience while being you know if you want to use I guess the correct terms disassociated from it right but 
I'll talk my way around anything. And I, you know, when I'm doing one-to-one talking therapies, uh, I become a good little patient and I make sure they answer all the questions in the way that they want me to. And I'm very good at making them think that I've gone there when I haven't remotely gone there. And that's not necessarily a ploy or a plan. That's what I do. And if I try and talk about how I'm feeling, uh, it's almost subconscious that I won't allow myself to feel it. And so talking for me, when so much of my stuff gets trapped down in my body, isn't always enough. And so breathing in the way that that I do, conscious connected breathing, um, has a way of sort of, I say it takes me beyond the rational part of my brain and into the emotional part. Um, and what you see when, when I do this with people is, um, and I see it in myself, it's like a lot of movement in the body as the energy starts to move. And then you see emotional release very, very quickly with a lot of people and particularly with the stuff that I do where you scream at the end, then you'll see a big, big release from people. Um, and I certainly know myself, for me personally, reflecting on my own experience, it still remains the only way where I fully get to release what I'm feeling. Mm. Uh, and I, like, I, I, I still... Look, I, if I think about the fact that I react to the world based on stuff that my body remembers, but that I don't recall, then there's stuff that I don't even think that I can make rational sense of when I'm being, we'll use that word, triggered again. I can yeah. be triggered on a day-to-day basis with no idea why it is, because it's something to do pre, pre-recall pre memory, yeah? So yeah. I'll, I'll never make sense of it talking because yeah. I don't remember what it's triggering. And so for me that physical and it's just breath work for me there's an you know there's a million and one different things out there again uh but it has such a huge impact for me and and i'm seeing it have huge impacts for other people as well yeah amazing amazing and yeah like it's just interesting isn't it that how you know for me treatment has to be holistic and talking therapy on its own is not something that i advocate either i'm you know consistently talking to people about how they're moving their body how they're moving things through um Okay, right, just moving on slightly. Now, I don't normally ask people about politics, but I did feel <laughs> called to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> We're going there, good. No, it's I'm excited. We'll talk about it on the podcast, but no, I felt called to kind of ask your thoughts on what we can do as a society to improve our collective sort of mental well-being, given where we are in the world with cost of living crisis with lack of resources all of the stuff that's going on for people at the moment because it really matters right that stuff matters yeah look I once had a therapist that I know uh she lives up in Scotland as well actually um and she said to me I get a lot of people that come in thinking they, they have a mental illness but what they've actually got is shit life syndrome and she was like because their life's really bad and so they feel really bad um and, and uh, look, I, I think it's wrong to talk about any kind of mental health in isolation and in, in the individualistic manner that we do. Uh, I think it's really I think it's really wrong. Um, we wouldn't do it with any other species anyway, either as well, by the way. Right. To look at the, the individual completely in isolation from the environments in which they existed. in. Okay. So to bring it to, to, to come to the question. The greatest thing that we can do for everybody's mental health is to fund children properly yes um is to change what we teach children so look i think we teach children from the age of five years old that um you're going to be of no value to this world unless you put in all of the effort for the next 10 years right so your value will only exist if you go and set and achieve we then um which is a lie people's value is intrinsic and exists in them and they have to find that right um or they should be shown it actually um the second lie that i think children are told is that um in western culture anyway um that you have the same um you have the same chance of success as everybody else and success in in the culture that we live in is defined as having a house being able to pay the bills and having money right and we tell all children that you've all got exactly the same chance right and then furthermore the next lie that children are told as they reach their adulthood is that if you reach adulthood with any level of distress um then it must be a problem with you because you've had every opportunity to not feel distressed um and so when you look at the structures of society that we live in um i think it makes a lot of sense that a lot of people are in a lot of distress at the moment um Mm -hmm. that is a 
political and social problem that Absolutely. needs a political and social issue rather than telling each and every individual that is feeling distressed at the moment that you must be the problem and so you need to go and find what it is within you that's broken and needs fixing rather than us all going hang on a minute there's something wrong with the way that we're living right yeah. and i think what's wrong with the way that we're living is the way that we fund children like i genuinely believe that um i think yeah. it all comes back to that absolutely and you know that early intervention um is so crucial i think you know getting in there and as you say funding supporting teaching them the things that they need to understand about what success actually is um and yeah like it just you know I, I guess what I'm trying to sort of get to is a sense of like where do we find hope in this you know like and I think we all need to be active and socially active in terms of what we're doing how we're voting what we're promoting you know all of those things feel important and I just wanted to touch on it because I know that it's something that you're you know you're, you're passionate about um okay this is a bit of a cheeky one but I love 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 Gabor Mate he's an absolute idol and I know that you've met him and I just wondered if you could talk to like what that was like what was his energy like <laughs> so I did I, it was about I think it was like four or five years ago yeah. um I actually discovered him about five or six years ago right yeah. and then I just became completely obsessed with him and then he came <laughs> to London I did a full I did a full day workshop with him wow. um it was just incredible, man. It was just, he, he, he is an absolute, um, I don't know, man, you, they say you shouldn't hold people up on pedestals. Right. Yeah. But I've got, I've got Gabor <laughs> way up on one. I know that much. Um, so it was an incredible experience, incredible moment when I met him. Um, I think <laughs> I made the mistake of dreaming it up in my head as being like a moment when he was going to be, like oh my god your energy my and then we were going to like become friends and went off into the sunset that didn't happen so there was a level of like disappointment in that um um but no it was amazing it was amazing and the way that he interacted with everybody that was there and the way that he compassionately brings opposing views around to uh, uh promote curiosity yeah i mean it, he shapes everything i do if i'm honest with you or you know there's him and a couple of other teachers that I would name as um really shaping what I what I've learned and what I believe um John Bradshaw is another one do you know John Bradshaw oh, um are you he's incredible check John like he's shaped a lot of what I believe as well and then like you know Bessel van der Kolk and people like that um I, look, with Gabor Mate, I always say there's a bit of irony in how addicted I became to listening to him. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I could I could listen to him on a podcast, and every time he gets asked a question, I could pause the podcast and answer it how he is yeah. about to answer it. <laughs> so and, that's how obsessed I am with him. But you know, I think yeah, he just he just has such a calming, grounded energy about him, and. He's my sense is he's unafraid to, you know, know that he is coming at this from a place of knowing a lot about trauma, but also, you know, I think he talks to self-awareness, but not always being as self-aware as he might like to be. And I love that because it's important that teachers take that position, that we don't take the expert position all the time because we're living it too, you know, and that's it's part of what I love about what you do, it's part of what I love about what he does. Um great, okay, thank you. That was a bit of a cheeky one. Um okay, <laughs> last one. Last one. What do you now know about your own psychology that you didn't know in the past? Um that a lot of the ways that I've reacted to the world make sense when you look at them in the context of my experience. Um, you know, I, I look at, I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder when I was in my early twenties. I would say that anxiety disorder looked a lot less disordered when you look at the disordered environment in which it first existed in. Um, and I, like when I trace back the ways that I feel far, far enough, I normally always find that, oh, they make sense. They might not be ideal reactions in the current life that I'm living, but they make sense when based on the you know the context of when they came about and that's why i'm so passionate about um 
working with young people and 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 helping people because I see people in so much pain all of the time and there's just like a distinct lack of giving people the grace and autonomy to mm -hmm. make sense of their pain right and to play a play a role in um finding out what they need to be on a healing journey with it yeah. um so that's what I would say that that, that you know that I'm not I'm not broken and you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I've been reacting to the world in the best way that I've known how based yeah. on the experiences that I've had up until that point. Amazing, amazing. And of course, you, you know, you've raised the whole bit about, you know, di diagnosis, anxiety disorders, all those types of things. And, you know, I'm a psychologist. We we are taught, you know, this is a DSM. This is how we, you know, define what that is, what that looks like. And, you know, I think I think things are changing. I, I really do think there's a step change afoot in terms of, diagnostic criteria and how that's going to look in even the next 10 or 20 years um, and as you say it, environment is hugely hugely important Josh honestly thank you so much for being here on the podcast I've absolutely loved this conversation um, and I'm sure the listeners are gonna gonna love it too so thank you for being here with me today thank you I really enjoyed it it's been a really good conversation amazing thanks Josh take care thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of Know Your Own Psychology. If you loved it, please share it on Facebook or Instagram for your friends and family. And if you really want to help me out, drop a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, you can email me, hello at drlaurawilliams.com. And if you would like to know your own psychology better, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose, come and join my growing community over on Facebook search Know Your Own Psychology and make a request.